If uh, you are wondering why I'm standing up here with Curtis this morning, I will tell you that there is both a general and a specific reason why I'm standing up here with him. The general reason is because I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, or you remember this or not, but Curtis is actually in seminary, working on his Master's of Divinity degree, and I'd like to remind you to pray for him. Uh, it is and can be very difficult to juggle the role of being a dad, of being a husband, of being a youth pastor, and of being a student all at the same time. So please remember to pray for Curtis that he would uh, have the energy to engage in his studies and also to take up all his other responsibilities. The specific reason, however, that I'm standing here this morning is because one of the requirements of a seminary degree is that every now and again, and in increasing measure, you come up and you preach to the people of God. And uh, today is that day when Curtis is going to uh, take on this task, which is actually one of the, it can be one of the most terrifying things that you have to do in seminary. Of course, Curtis is not scared, but um, there might be some nerves. And so uh, I also want to pray for you this morning that the Lord would be upon you and to remind you that he is with you. So let me pray for you. Dear Lord, we thank you for Curtis. We thank you for the journey that he is on. We thank you that you have given him your spirit, and we ask that the spirit would be dominant within him right now. Inspire his heart so that even as he speaks the word he has prepared, they may ring true. Inspire his mind and his mouth that as we listen, Lord, we too may know the word that you have for us this morning. Give him a sense of your presence, a sense of your peace. Rain down on him, O Lord, as you came down as a dove on Jesus. Come down on him. Anoint him now, we pray. Thank you in advance for the word that we will hear. Be glorified, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So, Jonah, if I've learned anything from listening to Pastor Ed and Pastor Denner preach from this pulpit over the last number of years, it's that starting a sermon with an anecdote to foreshadow your message is a good thing to do. So I thought I would take from their playbook and start with two, because why do one when you can do two? It wouldn't be better. It would be better after all, wouldn't it? So the first introductory anecdote that will foreshadow our message today comes from our staff meetings that we have every single Tuesday morning. It was just a few weeks ago when we're sitting there and Jenna walks into Ed's study and says, Ed, do we need to tell him? And I went, what's going on? And Ed's like, yeah, we could tell him. And I was worried, it seemed a little bit anxious. And Ed begins to explain that he had made a mistake. I know, can you believe it? He made a mistake and he had miscounted his weeks when he was sermon planning. He thought there were three weeks between um, the James series and Lent and in fact, there were only two. So he says, that's okay, Curtis, just preach Lent and Jonah for no problem. And I went, okay, sure, yeah, I could do that, why not? <clears throat> the second anecdote that I have is that, <clears throat> sorry, is that on Tuesday afternoons after our staff meeting, Pastor Ed and Pastor Jen and myself record a podcast. And this is a podcast where we add commentary to the Sunday sermon, we discuss it amongst ourselves, hopefully um, for your benefit, but indeed for ours as well. And Jenna asked me this past week and she said, Curtis, I hope I didn't steal your thunder, did I? And I went, not really, but kind of, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and the truth is, when you're preaching Jonah and we're studying Jonah, you can't 
really look at any one part of Jonah without looking at the entirety of Jonah. So Jenna did steal some of my thunder, and Ed did too two weeks ago, but that's okay because we're going to look at some specific things this morning. So when I was thinking about these two stories and how it frames into Jonah chapter 4, I was reminded of a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer. So, quote, There are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think of it as a book that was given to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Christ says in John 5, Search the scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things, as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored, so that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes in the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling cloths, but dear is the treasure, Christ, who lies in them. What a great quote. And if you attend youth group on a regular basis, you won't be surprised that Martin Luther managed to make his way into my message this morning. He's usually there in some form, either as a theologian or a reformer. But hold that quote in your mind because we will come back to it later. But also, I want you to consider two more things. When we're looking through this message today, there's two things that you need to remember. The first is, we have to consider the entire narrative of Jonah when we look at chapter 4. And secondly, all of the Old Testament testifies to Christ, who is the Word made flesh. Those are the two things we want to remember this morning as we look into chapter 4. And let me catch you up to speed. Pastor Liz read the story from the Jesus Storybook Bible, but let me give you a, another recap here. Jonah's a prophet. He's a real person who really existed in the later years of the kingdom of Israel, around 750 BCE. And the word of the Lord comes to Jonah for the first time, and he says, go and preach to the people of Nineveh, the enemies of Israel. And Jonah says, nope, I'm not going to do that, and he runs away. He flees in the opposite direction, attempting to flee from God's presence, but as you might already know, he's unsuccessful. He boards a ship, a storm comes, Jonah knows instantly that the storm is from God, and he tells the seafarers of the ship to toss him overboard to calm the storm. An opportune moment for God to accomplish the ministry, and he uses the situation to convert the seafarers, and Pastor Ed preached that message two weeks ago. Jonah now is in the fish. He's in the sea, and the fish comes to save him, and he prays a beautiful prayer, one that seems out of character from the first chapter of Jonah, and the fish, commanded by God, spits him onto dry land. The word comes again to Jonah, and he goes to Nineveh this time. He actually listens, and he preaches a terrible sermon, and yet the word was received, and Nineveh, Nineveh responds repentantly. And this is where we'll pick up the story today. Um, beloved of God, open your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. We will read the whole chapter. Jonah chapter 4. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? 
Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. So, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. He doesn't really get it, does, does he? He's mad. He's angry with God for being exactly who God is. The first verses in the fourth chapter where Jonah complains, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah wants to reform God into his own likeness, and he does not like God. And this is why some commentators have referred to Jonah as a xenophobe. He, doesn't, he simply does not like the people of Nineveh because they are not from Israel. In fact, they are the enemy of Israel. And because he does not like them, he does not want God to show them mercy. But God has just shown them mercy. Remember the final verse in the previous chapter of the story that tells us that God relented. God changed his mind about the destruction of Nineveh, and Jonah is now trying to change God's mind. He's trying to reform God into his idea and his likeness because he does not like the actions that God has taken in the world. How often do we do this in our own lives? We find it impossible to forgive. As one pastor put it recently, forgiveness is really easy until you have to do the forgiving. Jonah loves that God is merciful to him, but angry that God is merciful to the enemy. Who are our enemies? Who are your enemies that you might find it hard to forgive? And if you or I don't really want to forgive them, do we really want God to forgive them? Jonah should not have left Nineveh. I know that we've joked, and I did earlier in this message, that um, Jonah has the worst sermon ever preached. And it's a good joke, I think it's funny. But it's probably more accurate to say that Jonah was the worst minister who ever did minister. The ministry of God is a constant ministry of presence, and Jonah says his little message and leaves. He's not called away. Instead, he simply throws in the towel. This is significant because it reiterates the xenophobic nature of Jonah and the Jews of that day. God is their God and their weapon to destroy their enemies, not a God to love them and show them mercy. Jonah wants God to do what he wants and nothing else. So Jonah's mad. He's grumpy. He's angry. And when God challenges on his reaction, have you any right to be angry? God says to him. Instead of answering, Jonah is silent. He places himself in a shade outside the city and waits for the calamity to strike. Remember chapter 3 again. God has already acted in this regard. Jonah knows that, and yet he waits. Jonah hopes his patient anger will change God's mind about the Ninevites. 
This is now the second time in short order that Jonah tries to form God to his ideas, or maybe better way to put it would be to say that he's attempting to be God. Jonah thinks that his ideas about what should happen to the people of Nineveh are better than God's ideas. This once again underscores Jonah's true feelings of being angry at God for being God. Thirdly, in a dramatic stand to reform God into his own likeness, his own idea, he walks to the east of the city and waits for calamity to strike. And this is exactly what he does. He waits because the calamity that he's hoping for doesn't come. Now, there's a key word in this scene that is worth pointing out that communicates to us, the people of God, what God is trying to do in this portion of the story. When Jonah leaves the city to be a stubborn and angry prophet, he goes out and sits to the east of the city to wait for destruction. The next morning when the sun rises and the plant has made, that made Jonah happy had died, a hot desert wind comes from the east. The east. The east is where God's destruction will come from, or so the Hebrews thought in the day. Historically, it's from where many of the enemies of Israel would come from and came from. And this is a strategic literary move by the author to take the readers from their focus on Nineveh to their focus on Jonah. Chapter 4 is not about Nineveh's destruction at all, but about Jonah's destruction. His conversion experience in the belly of the fish in chapter 1 was just a stop on his journey of understanding because God loves his people so much he's continuing, continuing to work in and around Jonah to bring him onto the team. So a quick recap here. Jonah's angry with God for being exactly who God is, loving and merciful. We know the emotional state of Jonah in this moment because, because of his angry outburst in prayer in verse 2, his decision to place himself to the east of the city, and his silence when God asks of his anger. There's one more reason we know that he's angry towards God, and that's because the silence that he offers to God continues for quite some time. He sits silent in the shelter that he fashioned for himself and he waits patiently for the non-existent calamity to befall the people of Nineveh. I can imagine him sitting there, arms folded, a sneer on his face, and he waits thinking that his actions will be able to change God's mind. Jonah wants to be in control of this situation and is wrestling with God to have his own will be done. So, we have seen Jonah's response to God's mercy, and his response is to try and reform God's character. He's not happy with it. But now we get to continue reading and work through God's ministry to Jonah. God wants to reform Jonah's character. God is going to show Jonah mercy that he does not deserve. He is going to reform Jonah into a man after his own heart, a man who loves to show mercy. But God will not simply tell Jonah this in a straightforward way. We know from chapter 1 and chapter 3 that direct conversation with Jonah hasn't always been successful. With Jonah, you need an experience. Jonah needs to learn things the hard way. So God employs his creation once again to teach Jonah. Let me break here and underline how the book of Jonah emphasizes and underlines God's sovereignty over his creation, something that Jonah needed to be reminded of. Throughout the book of Jonah, the author emphasizes all aspects of creation. There are people, Jew and Gentile, there's land and sea, beasts and fish, plants and bugs, and even weather Rather than just telling you, let me show you. Jonah 1 verse 1. Jonah is named and placed in the history and geography as a Jew by being identified in his father's name. At the same time, the city of Nineveh from Assyria, full of Gentiles, is also named. In chapter 1 verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind and a violent storm arose. 1 verse 6, 
The captain says, call on your God. The captain's not a Hebrew, but a Gentile. 1 verse 9, after the conversation with the seafarers, Jonah identifies himself as a Hebrew and then also communicates the nature of God, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. In 1 verse 15, the raging sea becomes calm. In 1 verse 16, the mariners, the Gentiles, make vows to God, the Hebrew God. And in 1 verse 17, the Lord provides a huge fish to swallow Jonah. We could keep going through the entirety of the book, but I think you get the idea. In the first chapter alone, we see the author communicate that God is the creator and sustainer of all of his creation. God is sovereign over all. Jonah knows this, as we saw when he communicates as much to the seafarers in the midst of the storm. So, back to Jonah sitting on the sand. He makes for himself a shelter so that he can sit in and protect himself from the hot desert sun. It's evident in the text that Jonah's shelter is lacking. God, in his mercy, provides for Jonah a leafy plant to give him shade, and Jonah is very happy. God's shelter is so much better than whatever it was that Jonah fashioned for himself, just as God's mercy to us is so much better than any consolation we may be able to create for ourselves. The happiness is fleeting, though, because God, in his sovereign control over all creation, provides a bug to chew the plant and kill it so that Jonah is left with no shelter and exposed to the hot desert sun and the hot desert wind. God reminds Jonah in that moment that he is not only the God of Israel and not even the God of all people, but indeed he is the God of all creation. Furthermore, God cares deeply about his people, Jew and Gentile, along with the animals. God, in a very firm pastoral sense, teaches Jonah two things. First, that all things are under God's sovereign care. The plants that give him shade, the non-believing Gentiles of Nineveh, the animals, the seas, everything is under God's sovereign care and control, and he loves it all. The second thing God teaches Jonah on the, on the desert sand is that Jonah needs to care for the same things that God cares about. Pastor Jenna alluded to this last week, but likely God was already working through the very complicated pagan religion of the Ninevites. And while Jonah might not have had any idea, he must have known that God cared about them because otherwise he would not have given Jonah the word to preach to the Ninevites. Another way that we see God work to reform Jonah's heart is by posing him the same question as before. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? Jonah doesn't respond with silence this time. Instead, he responds to something far more traumatic. I am angry enough to die. Oh boy, Jonah, is it really that bad? Yeah, I think it is that bad. Right now, we're looking at the destruction of Jonah, and indeed, he's feeling destroyed. The first time around, the question was about the people of Nineveh, and now the question is about the plant. But you might already know that the question is really about the same thing. Are you really angry with God's sovereign action in the world? Jonah's death wish might be literal. The hot desert sun with no shade outside of Nineveh would not be a very pleasant time. However, I think the death wish of Jonah is also a symbolic death wish that Jonah is about to experience for the second time, the realization that he is dead in his sins and in need of a savior. But we'll talk about more on that in a little bit. God gets the final word in the book of Jonah. God pulls the two experiences, that is Nineveh and the plant, together into one question which gives clarity to the prophecy given in the previous chapter. God has been working among the Ninevites just as he has been working among the soil to bring about the leafy plant for Jonah. 
Jonah is mourning the loss of the plant, even though he has nothing to do with its life or its death. Using that illustration, God shares his heart for the people of Nineveh. Actually, not just the people of Nineveh, but the animals too. He loves them all, men, women, boys and girls, and even the animals. God created them, he has sustained them, and he has sent them a prophet to declare his love for them. So of course God cares for the people of Nineveh. The question that remains to us then is, does Jonah care for them? Has God successfully reformed Jonah's heart? Has Jonah finally come around to God's message? Is Jonah really a failure? I don't know. This is my favorite part of the book, the end of the book, not just because it's the end, but because I think it poses the best question. The final word in the book of Jonah is from God. And we don't know how Jonah answers exactly, but I think that I have an answer that might give us some of that. And it's a speculative line of thinking that some commentators have talked about. And this is the answer. So the question at hand is, has Jonah reformed? Has God successfully ministered to Jonah in this moment? And I think he has, because Jonah wrote the book. The authorship of these ancient texts is often debated, and Jonah's no different. However, there's a pretty good case to be made for Jonah's authorship, and it's worth noting that it's not entirely, you know, factual, but I think it's worthwhile because of the implication that it gives us about the text. Jonah, being the author of his own book, gives us an ending to the saga, and an ending that points us to the meaning of the Lenten season. Jonah doesn't need to answer the final question in the book because his authorship of the book is the final answer. He did get the message. He comes to love God for his slowness to anger and bountiful love, not just for his people, but for all creation, the adults and the children and even the animals. What we see in the final chapter of Jonah is another death experience where Jonah comes to realize that he is dead in his sin and alive in God. Twice he requests death and twice it does not come. Twice he wishes death upon himself, and twice he is given life. And where does that life come from? Well, it comes from the God of heaven and earth, the God who created and sustains all of his creation, and the God who, as, jo- as Jonah so beautifully writes for our benefit this morning, works to call people to his name using the creation and even the most reluctant of servants. So, back to the idea of Lent. This is the first Sunday of Lent, as we've already mentioned in this service. Hurrah, Easter is coming and all of that good stuff along with the festivities and the food and most importantly, the reminder of Jesus' death and resurrection for everyone. The theme of resurrection through Lent is imperative to the message of the season. It's not just a thematic element to a season within the church calendar, but a true historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, he would not have been God. The Gospels would simply be stories of a prophet, and we, the church, would not exist here today. The cycle of death and life is one that our entire faith hinges on, and that is what Jonah can teach us about Lent. Jonah dies and is given life twice in this story. He dies in his sin in the first chapter when he flees from the presence of the Lord and is raised to life by God through the ministry of a fish. Then he dies in his sin while sitting on the sand outside Nineveh where the Lord ministers to him in word and through the plant. That brings me back to the quote from Martin Luther that I shared at the beginning of the message. The Old Testament is good for study, and the Old Testament communicates the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can, on, we can find our only hope for salvation in the story of Jonah. I'm reminded of our Ash Wednesday service that we had this week. The reminder of death and penitence. The reminder that we are dust, and to dust we shall return. The reminder that we are dead in our transgressions. 
This is the same realization that Jonah came to, came to in the belly of the fish and the same realization that he comes to sitting outside of Nineveh. The book of Jonah is his personal testimony of death and resurrection to life in Christ. In that new life, Jonah finds, he finds a deeper purpose, a purpose to minister, not just to communicate the word received from God, but to minister by sharing his story for the people to learn more about God and the God that goes beyond being a tribal deity to the people of Israel, but the sovereign God of all people, of all creation, even the plants and the bugs and the animals, as Jonah testifies. What is the role of the church then? And what is our role as Christians as we move from February into March, from studying Jonah into Lent? Well, I think I have some ideas for you, but let me give you one clear idea that you might be able to work out in your place of ministry. We are all like Jonah in the sense that we have been given a word and that word is the good news of Jesus Christ and we're called to teach it as Jesus tells us in the Great Commission. I think the encouragement that we can receive from Jonah's ministry to us is simply this, share your experiences of coming to realize that you needed Jesus Christ, that you were dead in your sins and alive in Christ. When Jonah writes his story, he gives all the glory to God and paints himself as a stubborn, foolish, unteachable sinner. You might think that you don't have a story good enough to share, or you might feel like a Moses who can't find the right words, but Jonah's story ministers to that end as well. And Pastor Jenna talked about this last week. It's not your word to preach. It's not your story to share, but it's God's word and God's story to share. God didn't need Jonah to convert the seafarers, or he didn't need Jonah to convert the Ninevites, but he chose to use Jonah. God wants to use his creation, which you are a part of, to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't think that there is a better season to talk about our death and sin and our life in Christ than during Lent. The story of Jonah in the fourth chapter gives us a clear picture of a sinner and a merciful God. Jonah's story teaches us about who God is and how much he loves his creation, and specifically his people. That is, all people, not just the Jews. Jonah teaches us that God is slow to anger and abounding in love, so much so that he would direct his anger and punishment upon himself in the death of his son, Christ Jesus, to save us from our sins. In the same way the fish saved Jonah from the consequences of sin, Christ has saved us and given us a story to tell. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.